Hey, Karen, how are you doing today? Oh, great. Thanks, Tash. Uh, I've been a bit up and down, but right now I'm good. So I'm doing, doing good. Good to hear. Good to hear. So we have Karen Gall with us today, and we are talking about how we get through riding in the weeds and how we use our life challenges to really move through things. I've known Karen for a very long time. He was my boss in Rosalind. I got a job at the Red Shutter Inn and shortly thereafter, it was sold to Karen and Paula and they started an amazing cat ski operation. So Karen has been one of my mentors. I've watched him and his wife Paula create something out of a dream and even almost a kind of back back foot option of like, what are we going to do now when what we were thinking we were going to do didn't quite pan out. And from that space, it was absolutely incredible to watch uh, somebody just move through so many challenges. And I think one of the big things that Karen said to me one day was, Tash, you can't stop for too long or you'll get morose. And it really always stood out to me as like, that is entrepreneurship. When we stop and we think too hard, we end up in the weeds and we end up going into all of those places. If you're on your bike, and you stand there looking at the jump too long, or if you're standing at the top of a cooler and you think too hard about dropping into it, generally you're going to start to think, maybe this isn't such a good idea. So I wanted to bring Kieran on um, and just have a chat to talk about Big Red Cats and how he created the largest, one of the largest cat ski operations in the world. And still going today at the, the helm of somebody else now, but has left an amazing legacy and in talking about the challenges that he's currently moving through and how he is doing this. So yeah, Karen, tell us a little bit about why did you start a cat ski company? Let's start there. Yeah, it's sort of an interesting start because I was living in Sydney and uh, I was a finance guy there. So I do sort of leverage buyouts and that sort of thing for debt. And you know, the markets had gotten a bit silly and I'd done more than 10 years of it and I was very good at it, but, uh, you know, I was over it. I wanted to move to the mountains and just do something different. So because I had that financing experience, I thought, well, what's the funnest thing that I can do? And I, I first thought, well, I'll just buy a ski hill. We really didn't have much money of our own, but I thought, well, with all this financing experience, I can just find some investors and we can just do it ourselves. So that sort of started the process of looking at different ski resorts as they came up for sale. And um, there was one in New Zealand that came up, uh, for instance, I'm just, the names escaped me. But um, but then um, uh, Red Mountain came up. And so um, I'd heard lots of good things about it because there was lots of friends had been there before and told me the terrain was just fantastic and that sort of thing. So. So we um, got on the plane and went and had a look, basically. And I made contact with the owners of the ski hill and they were super friendly and supportive. And I said to them, you know, I think we can buy this off you and get, you know, sort of a deal done, but, you know, I'll need to put in a bit of work to make that happen. So that bit of work was doing a really detailed information memorandum, which just shows all the information about the resort and the financials and what's going on. And then I did a, a big business plan for the resort. Part of the business plan for the resort was 
I thought Red Mountain really needed a bit more excitement. And I thought that excitement would come from adding on a cat skiing area to the business plan. Um, so, so I put that into the plan and the sort of model and did a bunch of research to know what to do to start that as well at the same time. But then we raised um, $25 million, um, sort of committed. Um, and then we offered them $5 million. And they initially just accepted, uh, but then they started pulling back, you know, and, and then the two days after that, they said, no, no, we can't do it. And what had happened was um, Jim Green, who is the managing director of the resort, had talked to a guy called Howard Katkoff, who's now the current owner of the resort, uh, about doing a buyout. And so then Howard offered around about $13 million for the resort. And, you know, so we were basically just blown out of the water in terms of sort of pricing. So so we couldn't buy Red Mountain anymore unless we offered more. Um, we had the, a lot of that development capital, but we didn't want to spend that money because that money was all earmarked for new lifts and new infrastructure. And without that, we didn't think we could make a real success of the resort. Um, so everything, it all just fell apart. But because I'd done all that research to know as part of the business plan, you know, what to do to start a cat ski operation, I thought, well, immediately I'll just do an application for the cat ski operation. And I'll also buy the Red Shutter Inn, which is where we first met you, which was fantastic. And Ian, of course. And um, so then moving on from there, um, the first application was, oh, it's probably about 150 pages long. It was really detailed and that sort of thing. But it was over an area that was immediately adjacent to the ski hill and it included parts of Old Glory and Mount Plume. And, and these are really nice areas that people love to go ski touring in. So we, we always knew there'd be opposition there. But we had to try that area first because if the ski hill just was able to do it after we started somewhere else, then we wouldn't be in business anymore because that that have some other advantages over us in terms of infrastructure already in place and cats and much closer to the resort and better linked up. So when the, there's a lot of opposition, there's probably about 80 letters of people saying, no, this is a terrible idea. And there's probably about 20 or 30 letters going to the ministry of people said, no, that's a good idea. So we, when we got to the point where we realized that it was going to be impossible and that was going to be a failure, what we did is we just switched to another area that we'd all, already had our minds on because it had been identified as a suitable place in a sort of a tourism sort of um, a government sort of program to look at where the opportunities were. And that was one of them. And so we talked to all the people that were opposed or as many as we could and said, well, if we switch to this other area, will you be opposed? And about 10 people said, oh, they'll be opposed no matter what. But we found that there was a lot of support even from those people that were opposed to the first application were quite happy with the second one. So we applied and I ran a sort of campaign and I got probably maybe 150 letters of support and we had about 10 against and then the ministry then approved us, which is great. So we sort of faced a couple of failures there. A failure was not to buy the ski hill and then the first application was rejected, but we just kept going. And, um, and then the second um, 
application was approved. And then we had to start a cat ski operation. The problem was that neither Paula or I had ever been cat skiing before. It just sounded like a good idea, but it's kind of like, I don't know, maybe somebody, you know, who lives in New York just saying, I'm going to start a, a scuba diving operation. I've never been scuba diving before. So it was quite a big leap, but but I knew I loved skiing and I knew I loved powder skiing. So, you know, that that was essentially what the business was. So, uh, so I thought it was going to be awesome. Um, and, you know, we, because we had no experience at all, we had to sort of then just work out everything. And, and probably one of the best decisions that we made was um, for that first year where we could have maybe done something. We got the application approved, I think, in June, and uh, we could have maybe done something that season, but it was just too tight to organise everything. So we decided that we'd defer that and, and then start the next season. And that was a really good decision because it really didn't snow much that year that we missed out on that first year, which is great. Um, and so so then we had a cat ski operation and um, the first sort of step was we had to cut a whole bunch of snowcat roads and we had no idea what we were doing. Uh, so we got some guides in that had glided for different operations before and had done work. Um, there was a guy called Harry Allard um, who we hired and then Corey Howe um, and they were both excellent cutters but even though Harry said he had a lot of experience, he, he really, you know, he really didn't in the end in terms of knowing what's the right angle that you could build at and still get the cat up. And so we struggled away with um, with chainsaws and that sort of thing for that whole summer and built um, a lot of roads. Um, I, I don't know, it was maybe 12, 15, 20 roads and, and probably only just a bit more than half actually worked so you know so that was a bit of a failure sort of right there um most of those we got to work by you know learning for the next year that we could then dodge this way and use this terrain and that sort of thing so the work wasn't ultimately wasted most of the time but it felt a bit like it was sort of wasted at the time which is which is which is cool and then you know i had to learn how to use a chainsaw for falling trees and it was just hopeless to start with like really sort of terrible but i assisted at it and i had those really nice looking kevlar chainsaw pants by the end of the summer there was cuts and all sorts of things all through there which is a sign you know that you're sort of pretty hopeless sort of cutter but then at the same time, we had to build a shed. So we built this huge, huge shed, which was uh, 30 feet by 60 feet, something like that. And we had to get generators and compressors and um, lay all the concrete down and that sort of thing. So often I'd cut all day and then go and help the guys, you know, build the shed as soon as we finished that, you know, and put in another three or four hours into the evening, you know, trying to finish that shed. But then at the same time, uh, we needed snowcats. Um, so serendipity stepped in a little bit and helped us out there because Shelley Hummel, um, who Tash knows really well, put us in contact with the operation down in Oregon and they were selling a couple of snowcats. So that was just perfect. So we bought those and, and brought them up. Um, but then at the same time, we had to do marketing to actually get some people to come cat skiing. But it was a real leap of faith for those people because it was basically 
the cat ski operation really didn't exist except in my mind, really, when, when we were first starting it. But we had to convince all these people to pay, you know, quite a lot of money that that the operation was going to exist by the time the winter started and was going to be able to deliver some good skiing and that sort of thing. So, so we're doing marketing at the same time and um, doing all these things. And we'd pretty much burnt all our bridges. You know, I'd quit all my jobs kind of thing in Australia. We had three little kids, two were still in nappies. So we're sort of juggling that. And um, there was the Red Shutter Inn um, that you guys did a really good job with, which is great, which took a lot of pressure off. Um, but it was just a crazy time and we sort of bit off, you know, just a huge chunk of work. And um, and then we got to the winter and, you know, some of the roads worked and some of them didn't. It was a pretty good snow year, but just enough work that the cat ski operation, you know, sort of actually worked. And, um, you know, we got it started and we took people cat skiing and they were happy and um, and from there, we thought, yeah, okay, there's something here. There's a business that we can make work. Surprisingly, that first year, we took out over a thousand guests, which is unbelievable um, for any first year cat operation or heli operation, um, particularly when we basically had almost no time to sort of build it from scratch sort of thing. Um, so it was really a big challenge and a big struggle um, but then we'd also spent, you know, just about all of our money. We'd bought the Red Shutter Inn. We'd built a house at the base of Red. We'd bought snow cats. We'd built a shed. We'd hired all these people, um, um, done all this stuff. And, and so I knew that, that there's a good business that we could sort of create, but we're in danger of basically running out of money. Um, so... I got really lucky in the sense that a friend of mine, Kevin Bush, called me up out of the blue and said, hey, there's sort of a contract in Sydney you can do for three months or four months or something like that, um, you know, just doing what I did before. And so I took that and that was really good because they uh, paid all the expenses, paid me around about, I don't know, 2000 bucks a day, something like that. Um, and, and so I was able to get a bit more cash, enough cash that then we could really be aggressive that second year with cutting more runs and opening up more areas and that sort of thing. So we sort of just got by with the skin of our teeth. And right from that start, I guess, you know, it's a bit confusing, but in terms of the underlying operation, it was cash flow positive right from the start in terms of if you just look at the operations sort of thing, which is great. So once we got to the second and third year, that started really, you know, uh, contributing and then every bit of money that we made out of the business we basically just poured back in um you know to building more runs and more um snowcat roads and buy, buying better snowcats and you know doing all that sort of stuff your book it's called truth growth adventure yeah, yeah it's called growth truth adventure love which is awesome it's, it's so matches exactly every step of your story so far it's like there was this idea okay that's maybe not going to work so we're just going to pivot slightly and then there's this idea and that's maybe not going to work and we're going to pivot but at the same time it's kind of like when you're out skiing when you're out mountain biking when you're doing that sort of stuff it's like oh okay this isn't going to work I can't go that way I'm just going to go slightly in a different direction 
But at the same time, everything that you had done kind of made sense. You got a lot of retaliation from the community and made yourselves fairly unpopular when you suggested doing the Roslyn Range. But in doing that, what came out of retaliation and that anger has to date is still created one of the most amazing recreation areas probably in all of Canada because of what that group has done and continue to do to preserve that place. And that didn't just help the community, but it really helped you because it meant there was absolutely no way that you were ever going to have competition go into that area. Like it's super smart. It was actually really lovely because there's maybe a one or two sort of really irrational people that you just couldn't talk to. But most of the people were really nice that were opposed. So I really made a big effort to talk to them directly after that first application and, you know, understand their sort of concerns and and that sort of thing. And then I did actually suggest that what they should do is apply for that, you know, sort of recreational area up in that space so that it could have some long-term security over that sort of recreational asset and for the community. And that's what happened. Um, I actually even helped do one of the first drafts with, I think, Kim Dean for that. And so that sort of cooperative approach then really made a difference. And you're right, like you can see now, that's really a fully functional organization, building cabins and ski outs so people don't get lost and putting in toilets and car parking and all sorts of things. And, uh, you know, it's just a wonderful thing. So that's something that community should be really proud of, actually. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's such a good example of how it's so easy to get stuck. Like you could just get stuck in the weeds and be like, oh, you know, there was all this stuff that went on. But in fact, when we don't and we move through and we see other opportunities and we work collaboratively together, more beautiful things come of it. And with each step you took, even though this didn't work, but this did. And as the cat ski operation grew, so many of those roads got integrated into other areas. And yeah, we always had fun stories when we were doing the little zigzag around the tree to go up the bit that was completely impossible to get up. It just all adds to everything and just that ability to keep moving, even when things are looking challenging. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we faced so many challenges. And over the next few years, just building more roads, and building more runs. And then I, I think in year three, we had our first terrible avalanche accident. And, you know, we were so lucky because that could have just shut down the operation right then and there. I don't know if you remember Magdalena sort of getting buried. We had a group that was skiing and didn't have a great feeling for the day, but we went out anyway because, you know, there's good snow because of the storm, but I was worried about the avalanche risk. So I called in, I I sort of, you know, told somebody else to go off the roster and called in Keith Robine to help that day. And I was really glad that I did because he ultimately ended up saving this person in time out of the avalanche. And um, she was buried about 1.4 metres deep. So it's quite deep for any burial. So we're really, really lucky that, you know, that she didn't die because that could have been the end of the operation there as well. So it was a really tough start, um, but, you know, we really worked at it incredibly hard and just kept and kept going. I think part of it, you know, that sort of made the difference is that, you know, we, we had really burnt all our bridges. 
there was nothing that we could go back to now. And, um, you know, we just had to make it work. We weren't wedded to any particular idea about how things should be run. So if something didn't work, then we'd, we'd just try and change as quickly as we could. And sometimes, most of the time, that was quick enough. Well, and, you know, what was interesting about the avalanche was it not only had Keith just come off of teaching an avalanche course all weekend, so it was the 100%, 100 million percent best guy to be there was on top of his game. But the history of that, I believe it was the same mountain, was, you know, the history of that area the first time back in the 70s that they had, or the 80s, they had tried to start a heli ski operation in that area. And first day out, they had had. Now, that was a different spot, actually. So that first avalanche accident that we had, the bad one there, <clears throat> that was in uh, sort of almost heading down into, off Pluto on the north side. So just in that sort of Pluto North Pole. But Tash, you're exactly right. Then probably, I think it was 1982, <clears throat> a heli ski operation tried to start heli operation in our area. And <clears throat> on that first day, on the first run, um, the guide and the guest were both killed. Um, and it was just such a tragedy. And that was the end of the operation, um, sort of right then and there. And um, and that was at a time when they didn't really know as much about avalanche risk management as they do today. Um, and so the guide made some fundamental errors there that could have quite easily been avoided. Um, so So it was a bit tough on them. Yeah. So how many years did uh, did you run Big Red Cats for? I think it was like, I think it was about 15 seasons um, in the end, maybe 16, you know, something like that. And then we, you know, before that we had a couple of seasons of setup. And if you look at back earlier, <clears throat> when I first wrote the business plan for the thing, that was probably in 2001. Um, so, you know, we really started thinking about it and doing something about it, maybe 20 odd years, essentially. So, so there was a lot going on. When you had those biggest challenges where you were facing, like, I don't know if we can get through this, what would you say the key things were that allowed you to move through, keep going and let that vision pull you through? How often was it the pain pushing you and the vision pulling you? And what do you think really attributed to that mindset? You know, for me, I think what happened is you know, the harder it got, the more I just worked at it. You know, you can sort of sit at home and get stressed by it, but, you know, but that doesn't do anything. So in those really tough situations, we just kept on getting out and showing up and, you know, just trying to make it happen and find a different way of making it happen. So we'd constantly be pivoting and moving around and changing things and, you know, hoping that we could sort of get on track because the wonderful thing about sort of business and life is that you can basically whatever you can imagine you can basically do there's always a way and even when you don't think you've got many choices most of the time you do you have lots of choices and so when you run out of money maybe instead of getting a job I could have just looked for some more investors kind of thing or with the avalanche risk management stuff we can just try and hire better guides and put in place better systems and make sure that nothing like that happened again sort of thing. But it's a really difficult, complex operating environment when you're out in the mountains or out in the wilderness. So at the same time, you just can't predict 
what's going to happen. So you have to be really, really flexible so that you can adjust quickly to whatever does happen, whether that's you know a season where it just never snows or whether that's some really tough staff problems or you know whatever it is so and yeah, yeah you pretty much had all of it <laughs> and you ski yeah. every day through all of it yes i did but but also as well as skiing i sort of um you know i'd come home at nights often and you know then write up a new application to change the area or add something in or you know, talk to customers or that sort of thing. And Paula was doing the same thing. You know, she was amazing through it. But we also had, like I said, those three young kids managing all that at the same time was was really, really challenging. You know, so we were lucky to lucky to get through it all, which is great. Yeah, no, and I will never forget the early days. I think it was the first or the second season when there would be a spare three seats in the cat. And so it's, where's Kieran? Well, he's out knocking on people's doors to see if anyone wants to come cat skiing because, you know, giving them the best deal ever. And I used to giggle because I'd see you and you'd be in like one cross-country ski boot and one snow boot and running around still in your ski gear at, you know, 11 o'clock at night and I remember when Ian was at the Olympics and those two years he was away and there were several times when I would look at myself and be like, oh, look, I'm doing a Karen. It's 10 o'clock at night and I would have been cat skiing all day and then I would have gone and driven a bus and cleaned a bunch of rooms and then gone and done a snowshoe tour and I'd be sitting there and it was 10 o'clock at night and I'm wearing my snowshoe gear and hadn't gotten changed from when I gotten up in the morning and, and started the day. And I really started yeah. to yeah. know exactly what it was like. You're juggling a hundred balls. It's definitely sometimes hard to find the same two pairs of shoes and not still be in your wet, soggy gear at the end of the day. And that's just what we do to make things work. It was, it was definitely really challenging times, but at the same time, it was a fantastic experience to try and create something from nothing like you know not many people get the opportunity to do that and so it's sort of like a completely clear canvas and we create whatever we wanted as long as we could put in enough work or put in enough whatever effort to make it happen sort of thing so so it was great which is cool yeah, yeah. I remember when we first arrived in Rosalind and you'd meet people and you'd hear about like what they used to do in Rosalind and, you know, different businesses that people had been a part of and, and the people that had paved the way to like the town that we'd walked into and, and what it was then and, you know, what it was today. And I think it's really neat when you look back and you go, hey, I actually, I'm one of those people. I get to be one of the people that can say, hey, I'm the guy who started the cat ski operation in Rosalind. And, yeah. you know, it's pretty cool. You can be the person who worked at the grocery store, but like really stepping in and you being someone that's like really gone through the ringer and back again to create something that has a, a lasting legacy and has become an iconic part of a ski resort is pretty cool. Yeah, no, it is pretty cool actually. So that's oh, good. Fast forward. I want to talk a little bit about sort of not so much about your current journey, but a little piece of your story right now that I really think comes into this whole riding in the weeds thing is what you did right after you were diagnosed with colon cancer. Listening to your book and in the first chapter, you talk about how right after you got your diagnosis, 
you went out and became one of the first crazy people to decide to figure out how to surf on a foil surfboard. I'd just like to kind of dig into sort of where your mind was at and and why that was how you chose to move through the process. Yeah, it's it's a good question. So yeah, I got um, diagnosed with um, the stage four colon cancer in um, 2020, I think in April or May of 2020. Um, and it, it's a bit of a harsh sort of blow because the survival stats aren't that good kind of thing. Immediately after they found it, they wanted to go in and do a big operation to cut out around about 60 centimetres of my colon and then about a third to a half of my liver sort of thing. And then also cut out any lymph nodes that they could find that were cancerous. And so they ended up cutting, I don't know, about 60 or 70 of those as well. So it was a real mess and I knew I was going to be a real mess after that operation. So I thought, well, I've got to get my mind off this and do something else. So I thought, well, the, you know, the sport I'd seen a little bit that was just starting was wing foiling. And it's where you get on a, a surfboard with a foil that's attached to the bottom. That's like a little wing that goes underwater and gives you lift. Um, but you also use a handheld wing to give you speed so that you can travel along on, on top of the water. So that sort of really inspired me. So I thought, well, you know, um, in the two weeks before that operation, I thought, well, I'll just start learning how to wing foil kind of thing. Because I was still feeling relatively okay at that point. It had stomach aches and that sort of thing, but it wasn't, you know, terrible um, yet at that point. So I did that and I think, oh, you know, the first few days, I think I must have fallen like 80 or 90 times just trying to get up and work out how the fall worked. But every time I just keep getting up and that sort of thing. But the beauty of it was that at no point when I was falling off and getting back on and then starting go, to go for little rides, at no point was I thinking about the cancer, which is great. So it took my mind completely off it because I, this, the balance just on it is really fine that it engages your whole mind so at night often if I'd been out for a few hours that day I'd sort of start dreaming about getting on the foil and the nice sort of blue water and that sort of thing and um, and sort of riding it so it really it really distracted me and got my mind into a really nice place even though like I said, I was falling off and just failing all the time. It was still out in a beautiful spot and still super fun sort of thing. So so that was great. And then I had that operation and then it was about, I don't know, 10 and 11 hour operation. So I was in the hospital for a couple of weeks after that. Um, but then maybe three weeks later, once some of the wounds had healed a bit, I, I started to get out again just gently but now I'd done most of the work so I wasn't falling in all the time but I was still falling in and that sort of thing but I was just you know then just worked on getting better and better at the wing foiling which is really nice. And one of the coolest things about Kieran is that if there is a body of water somewhere and he can jump in it and go for a swim he will and I think the most incredible thing to watch over the last two to three years has been watching you on Facebook it's every opportunity that you have to go and do something physical and get out and throw all the things that you were doing on Kieran's days off. If he was not out powder skiing, which was probably only like five times a season, he would 
run to the top of Red Mountain and, and ski down. There wasn't a moment when you weren't out there using your body and really taking the physical aspect. And I think the wing foiling is really a, a conclusion of exactly how you've always used that physical to manage the mindset. I think so. Everything. Yeah, I, I think so. It's really hard right at the moment. Probably got, I don't know, maybe another two or three weeks left sort of thing. So you can see, have a look at this. You can see the cancer is just eating away at everything now. And, and so, you know, it's it's harder and harder to get out. And so I'm sort of still able to walk, um, but, you know, it's sort of, you know, maybe another week or two, I won't even be able to do that. So, you know, so it's, it's definitely a hard road at the moment, which is cool. Yeah, no, I, I understand. Well, I don't understand that, but definitely that's the worst part, right? Is, is when all the ways that you get yourself joy and you can no longer do them anymore. And Yeah. Yeah, that's the, it, it is tough. And uh, I've, I've got lots of pain at the moment, you know, sort of, taking painkillers, um, but, you know, but a lot of the time it doesn't work and you can probably notice I've been moving around quite a bit and that's just because I've got a little bit of pain and if I keep moving, it sort of helps, you know, change position and that sort of thing. But, um, but you know, I think that's a sort of different sort of situation. You know, I'm sort of pretty much at the end of things. But the cool thing about it is that, you know, I just feel really good about, what I've done in life and I don't have any regrets about the things that I've done or that sort of thing. So that's a sort of a really excellent place to be just at the end of your life. I think you don't want to leave anything on the table. Basically, you just want to, you know, have really gone out there and just as lived as hard as you can, basically. Yeah, I love that. Over the past two to three years, you have been the absolute example of live every day as if it's your last because really that's exactly how we should be doing it and instead of getting stuck and letting ourselves get down and being stopped we don't know what's coming around the corner and you know you're literally one of the healthiest people I know and I'm sure the way you've lived your life has definitely allowed you to be around for a lot longer um yeah I think it definitely actually just keeping up that exercise and that sort of thing it's mostly important for the mind and the brain if you just don't stay active I think then you lose you know so much so quickly I think when we're out in the forest or jogging or running or mountain biking or whatever it is you get so much inspiration and ideas and that sort of thing flowing that's where you need to just be able to sort of try and recharge every day. And I think that's important just for everybody. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. We keep moving. We keep doing the things that we love. Then the time that we have is more enjoyable and more fun. One of the, the things that we didn't touch on is your skiing prior to being a finance person. So why was skiing so important to you? And also a little bit about how the fact that your amazing daughter is following on in your legacy and you almost went yeah. to the Olympics and she's going to go to the Olympics. I, I started, my mom and my dad taught me how to ski when 
was about three years old and I just really loved it. And then we sort of persisted and kept going with it. And then my sister was a much better skier than me, actually. And she went into these recreational races called NASTA. I think they still have them in the States, but she went to the national finals and I think she won them for her age group. And so they gave her a pair of skis and some money, and they also gave her an invitation to join the ski race club. And so because Katie, my sister, and me being the little brother, I just sort of followed in her slipstream sort of thing and, um, and sort of got in. But I just loved it. I really, really loved being out in the mountains and doing all that stuff. And so I did ski racing, you know, until I was about 18. The last few years were just mostly racing downhill, which is the fastest of the disciplines. You get up to about 150K per hour. I sort of didn't choose that really. I just went in the, the first one that I went in, I raced really well, got a really good result. So the coaches were all like, you got to stick with this buddy kind of thing. And so that's what happened there. But, but for the ski racing, particularly probably the last two years of it, I sort of felt like my life was really being pulled out of balance because you're in Europe for five, six months a year. And there wasn't the internet there these days where you can just call people for free and that sort of thing. So it was really hard being disconnected from any other sort of life. It was hard to have a girlfriend or do any studies or that kind of thing. So by the end of it, I was ready to move on and go to the next thing. But what I found was probably from when I was 12 to 18, any time that I had a little break from ski racing or the weather had snowed a bit so we weren't training or whatever, I'd always just head out in the mountains and start exploring the backcountry. In these times, that meant just basically sort of boot packing up mountains and skiing down them because the equipment really wasn't great there was almost no ski touring equipment except telemark skis at that point and um you know didn't have any extra money to spend on telemark skis but that's sort of what's got me into the backcountry and i, I for a skier like me I, I think that's the sort of the evolution i think the reason why people ski is that it's just completely about freedom you're flying down a mountain at speed just having fun and powder skiing is the ultimate expression of that freedom on snow. You might as well have wings that you're just flying across this beautiful surface and it's just so much fun. You can play with the mountain and that sort of thing. So anyone who's a good skier, I think, aspires to that sort of feeling of absolute freedom. So I think it's sort of a natural progression, although some people never get there because just circumstances or they never get to try it or, you know, whatever it is. So. Yeah, I think that's... That's another example in life, right? There's so many people that have never tried powder skiing because they're scared of going off the piece. They're scared of going off that groomed path. I remember that mindset that you have to gravitate towards when you're out in the wilderness and there's a path and you're like, well, maybe I should follow that person's trail. And you're like, well, I don't want to follow that person's trail. Like I want fresh snow. And those times when I got to lead a run, it's scary because you're going first and you have no idea what might be down there, but at the same time, the rewards and how it feels and that freedom of yeah, flying and just absolute bliss that you get when you drop in on something that you really don't know 
what is coming or what's going to happen and take those risks is I think when we really get the biggest and most amazing rewards in our lifetimes. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much. Kieran has an amazing book and it's on Spotify as a podcast. I believe it's on Apple as a podcast as well. Yes, it's on Spotify and Apple podcasts and Google podcasts. And as I said, it's it's all free and each chapter is almost its own story in a way. And so each episode is a chapter basically. So there's I think there's 33 chapters there and um, I'm hoping to finish the last chapter in the next week or so before I'm too sick kind of thing. So I've got that as a goal, but I took a different painkiller this morning um, called Plexia and I, I found just my mind was just completely scrambled so I couldn't even write. So that's probably why I'm a bit garbled still now. So I won't take that one again, but but yeah, it's, this is drugs for the pain essentially, which is good. You can also read it as an ebook, um, and that's on Amazon and Apple Books, which is cool. I haven't got a hard copy option yet, but I'll probably try and do that. But uh, when I first looked into it, it's really really expensive because it's quite a long book. It's about I don't know, six, 700 pages or something like that. If you just get printed out locally down here in Australia, it's about 50 bucks a copy. And I thought, well, nobody's ever going to buy a book for 50 bucks kind of thing. So I thought that was a bit silly. But um, but in China, you can get books printed probably for maybe one-fifth of the cost or one-quarter of the cost. But the problem with that is you have to have a sort of minimum order of maybe like 300 books and then you got to end up with a whole garage full of books kind of thing and uh, Paula I don't think was definitely keen on having a whole garage full of books sort of thing it's so neat though and it's called growth truth adventure and love and it's definitely worth a listen there are so many stories that you have in your life that you spend a lot of time talking about all of the different adventures that you've done because as you say, right? Like leaving no cards on the table and really just stepping in and yeah. being wholehearted. And that's when we get the most rewards. I think so. At this point in my life where I've only got a few weeks left, the things that you really value is obviously your family and then all those sort of relationships that you've had. And the book has been really wonderful in terms of helping people sort of make contact because when you've got lots of pain, your world really sort of shrinks. There's not a lot you can do when you have lots of pain. And so you don't go out as much and, you know, it's harder to get out of the house. And when you've got a lot of pain, you don't really want to see people because it just, you know, it just hurts. But the book has sort of done the reverse. It's been a real catalyst for people making contact and opening up things. And so that's been really, really wonderful. Been so good to connect with so many people. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, so a great undertaking to leave us with as well and share with all of those people, right? So we definitely appreciate That's right. it. When I was writing different chapters, thinking about different audiences, like for the Avalanche chapters, and there's maybe three of them, that was really written with maybe the future guides in mind that either work at Big Red Cats or other places to show them in a really story-type form what happened and why and how to avoid those sort of mistakes sort of thing. So that was written there. Um, those first few years of Big Red Cats, I actually thought of 
another young couple that are starting a cat operation. And I actually thought of them when I was writing some of that, you know, so they could get a real sense of what's involved. You know, those first few years, it's just got to be go, 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 go. And you've got to do everything to make it work because just even a few little things can mean that you just don't have a cat operation sort of thing. So you've got to just jump into it with everything that you have. And then the cancer chapters were written a lot for people that might be facing that or facing other sort of struggles. And then there was chapter on high finance and sort of in New York and that sort of thing. And so it really covers a very broad sweep of activity and that sort of thing. Just really fun. Yeah. yeah. Very indicative of your broad sweep of all of the things that you have experienced. Yeah. And, uh... oh, and I forgot to mention Sammy because you asked. Yeah. So I did ski racing for quite a long time. And I was never that great, actually. Like, I was okay. And I, I think highest world ranking was like 220 or something like that in downhill. But I was way behind. And I actually thought if I really, really stuck at it, I could probably make the Olympics in my mid to late 20s if I got lucky. But I would have had to have given up, you know, the opportunity to study and do other jobs and get married and meet people and those sort of things. And so that was a trade-off I wasn't willing to make for a 50-second run down a hill where I wasn't probably going to win anyway. So it wasn't worthwhile. But Sammy, on the other hand, is a much better skier than I ever was. Um, she's 22 at the moment. She's number two in Australia. Um, and she's got a good chance of going to the next Olympics in Cortina. And um, she just really loves it. Whereas... Uh, probably when I finished up at 18 or 19, I just didn't love it that much anymore. But for some reason, she just does. And she sort of stubbornly sticks at it. And she has injuries and problems, but she sort of, you know, just keeps going. And so she's leaving, I think, um, in a couple of weeks to head to Europe to start her next season and the whole training and racing. Yeah. And yeah. just a fun fact, she happens to be, a very good friend of uh, my husband Ian's uh, niece, who is number one or number two in New Zealand. So uh, we always knew that they would at some point in time cross paths. And it's really neat. Amazing. Yeah. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. I think when we're out yeah. doing the things that we love, we gravitate towards the people that do the same. So yeah. This is the Riding in the Weeds podcast. If there is one last thing that you would want to leave my listeners with about how to navigate the weeds of life, do you have one last nugget of wisdom that you can share with us? I think the biggest sort of lesson that I learned from Big Red Cats, I think, was just how important teamwork was. Because really, in finance, uh, you know, I could just do my own thing and work on things and make them happen. But to get something like Big Red Cats going or anything else, teamwork became the most important thing. So I'd say for anybody trying to get out of the weeds, make contact with as many people as you can, build your support networks and, and help those people when they need help. And you can achieve just so much more if you leverage that way. So get a good team behind you or with you I'd say it's the best way to get out of the weeds. I love it. Thank you so very much. And I think you're absolutely right. And we work together as a community. A rising tide lifts all boats. And it's also a lot more fun. It's really, 
Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Karen, for chatting with us today. I'm Tash, and you can find me on Instagram at Betty Gohard. And if you'd like to download a copy of the Goddess Experience Worksheet, go to bettygohard.com forward slash Goddess Experience Download. The Goddess Experience is all about defining life on your terms, creating the experience that you want to have versus the one that you get. So the worksheet will walk you through defining those terms, celebrating the wins that you've already had, and then creating that future vision. And then there's some steps to really create the actions that you need to take in order to get you there. So go check it out. I'm Jenny of Soul Pet Connections. I'm an animal communicator and energy healer for animals and their people too. If you'd like to deepen your relationship with your pet or just learn about those quirky things that they do, you can find me on the web at soulpetconnections.com. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook at Soul Pet Connections.